Today's message is about being a victorious warrior. It's a message about Saul, king of ancient Israel, but it's a message to you and to me today about what it means to serve the Lord, to trust the Lord, to come in to his covering, the, the shadow of his wings, that strong tower that we sang about this morning that is the Lord, to come into his presence, into his protection, into his victory. You're fighting a battle today, whether you know it or not. You probably do know it. You may have more battles that you are fighting than you realize. It may be that in the battle that you are fighting, you don't realize the enemy that you are facing or the victory that is available to you in Christ. And if that's the case, I want you to know that the word of the Lord to us in 1 Samuel chapter 11 is a word of the Lord to you today about how to be an overcomer in him. And he's already achieved that victory for you. So now it's time for you and I to lay hold of it, to receive it, to believe it, and apply it. Are you ready for that? Are you willing to do that? Amen. Then let's do it. You at home, you can turn your Bibles also to 1 Samuel chapter 11. Or if you've got a screen in front of you, we will project that text onto the screen as well. But I encourage you to have the word there with you, whether it's electronic or printed. Have the Bible in your hands and in front of your eyes because it's your job and mine to really know this word and to really put this word into our hearts like a seed. The Lord, by his spirit, will cause it to grow. But it's up to you and I to not just have it, but to hold it, to read it, to know it and to apply it in our lives. So let's pray to that end. Father God, as we come to your word today, we ask that you would help us to understand this text of scripture and everything that will come forth through this teaching and preaching. We pray, Lord, that by your spirit, you would grant for it to convey, to communicate what you intend for every person who is hearing it today on whatever day that they may be receiving it, Lord. Reach them in their particular place of need, of purpose, of calling, and speak to each one of us. But also, Lord, we ask, especially today in this message that is so concerned with unity and so aware of the difficulty that unity presents, we ask that you would connect us not only to you, but to one another, and that we would be a blessing to one another inasmuch as you have blessed us to be a blessing. So be it, Lord, in the mighty name of Jesus. And if you agree with that prayer, say amen. amen. It's in those hours when the sun seems farthest from the earth, even though it's only a little while until it rises above the horizon. The dark hours, quiet before dawn. The birds of morning will start to sing in just a little bit, but they haven't begun. Here and there, there's a stray one. We wonder, why does that bird start so soon? Maybe it's afraid. Maybe it's confused. Maybe in its solitary aloneness, it's crying out, but it fades quickly. And then there's the silent of night, the sounds of sleeping. The earth itself seems to slumber. And men, soldiers, huddle together. They're breathing quick and shallow, their hearts beating. That fear, 
very natural, even good, that precedes battle, so we are told. But also something else, a sense of strength, a kind of purpose, a strategic plan, and faith. Patiently there waiting for precisely the right moment when they will spring their attack. It's Saul and his men in the hours before dawn, about to come into battle with the Ammonites, one of their chief enemies, thousands of years ago, in the hours before dawn. But it's you and I today, living in a world that seems so dark, that surely the, the sun must be farther away than ever, and yet the truth is, though you cannot see it, the sun of righteousness is about to rise with healing in his wings. The return of the sun is just a few degrees off the horizon. He's coming back. And now in this moment, there's a battle to be faced. There's a quickening of the heart and a shallowing of the breath. But for those who are united in the army of the king, there is patient faith and hope and trust. There's a strategic plan. There's a purpose. And it's victory. And so we wait for the word, the word of the Lord that says, rise now and go forward. The battle is yours. 1 Samuel chapter 11 describes for us the first real battle of the reign of Saul. This is Saul of the Old Testament, Saul of the tribe of Benjamin, that young man, broad of shoulder and tall of height, who stood head and shoulders above the rest of the kingdom and was anointed by God through the man of God, the prophet Samuel, whose story we are telling in this series. Anointed to be king, Saul, who would rule his people with unity who would bring his people to victory in this passage. Now Saul is what we would call today maybe a problematic figure. As you'll remember from last week's lesson, we already are aware of something that the scripture makes plain to us. Though Saul begins well in his service to the Lord and in his ruling of the kingdom, he doesn't finish well. Turn to the person on the other side of you this time. At home, you can say to somebody and say, it's important to finish well. Say that. It's important to finish well. You know, in many ways, and I hope that this will be an encouragement to you today, it is to me, it's more important how you finish than how you started. And you know why that's encouraging? Because none of us can go back to where we started now, right? That's in the past. But isn't it interesting how often you and I get all caught up in the mistakes that we made before? And we think, oh, if only I could go back and I would do that again differently. Or maybe we draw the different conclusion. We say, I have no regrets. Have you ever known somebody like that who says, I have no regrets? Sure, I've, you know, it's like Sinatra singing, mistakes, I've made a few, but I did it my way. <laughs> Right? People who say they have no regrets, I think what they are determining is, I just decide not to regret anything, but I don't know how righteous that really is, nor how real. It's easy to say you have no regrets, 
Not many people really feel it. Nor necessarily should we. The truth of the matter is we've all made mistakes. But we can't change what's past. We can make restitution. We can consider retribution. We can and should repent. It is the starting point for humanity in terms of the gospel. When Jesus comes to us, what he preaches is repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's an opportunity. It's just like I was saying earlier. Giving is a gift from God to us. So is repentance. So it's good to recognize our wrongs and be repentant. But it's also wise to remember you cannot change the past, but what you do today determines your future. So look to finish well. Because many can begin well, but not many can make it to the finish line. And if they do, whether they make it there as a winner or not, really depends not on how they started so much as how they ran the race. And so you might say, well, then why do we look at Saul in today's story and find anything to celebrate? Because when there is a victory of the Lord, it is worth celebrating. And it is good that you and I should praise the Lord, but it's also good that you and I should recognize that the scriptures do not present people to us in such simplified form that we can just put black hats and white hats on them, you know, like the old cowboy pictures, and say, here's a hero and here's a villain. What is Saul? Is Saul a hero? Yes. Is Saul a villain? Yes. Is Saul wise? Does the spirit of the Lord cause him to prophesy? Yes. Is Saul a fool? Does his own flesh trip him up? Yes. So there are lessons for you and I to see in Saul because guess what, folks? You and I are like him in this. We can be heroes or we can be villains, and most of us from time to time have been both. But the real question is, are we following the Lord? And that's ultimately what becomes decisive for Saul. It's not so much what he does, it's who he follows. In chapter 11, he's following the Lord. So we can see a good example there. But in the weeks to come, as God allows, you and I are going to see in the concluding sermons from this series, which is going to take us just through chapter 15 of 1 Samuel, we're going to see the seeds sown that sort of lay the groundwork for Saul's fall. In fact, the last three messages of this series are entitled Saul's Fall, parts one, two, and three. We'll look at that. But what we'll see over and over again is that the problem of Saul's behavior is really a problem of Saul's heart. It's where is his focus? It's who is he trusting? So there's a lesson even here for us in that. The victory that Saul is going to achieve is properly understood as God's victory. And if you and I get confused about who it is that is achieving the victory for us, then we can start to get our focus on ourselves in a way that really belongs on the Lord. And when we do that, no matter how well we may have begun, we're putting ourselves on a trajectory to end poorly. So let's not do that. Let's keep our focus on the Lord. And one of the reasons why we're going to look at the uh, episodes of Saul's life over the coming weeks 
and see what we can learn from them is because sometimes folly, foolishness, and failure can teach us as much as victory and wisdom. And so you know what? That's something for you and I to learn from as well. We can share our failures with others. We can do that in a way that actually benefits others if our focus is on Jesus. As Christians, it's good to tell people how God has improved our lives. But it's also good at times in ways to share how you've fallen short of God's will and purpose for you because it's an opportunity to declare his ongoing faithfulness, his graciousness and forgiveness, and to remind ourselves and others of the humility in which you and I should walk. If we really want to have the victory of the Lord, we need to walk in the humility of his spirit. Now, there is a need for victory, and that's because there is a battle. Even as I said, each of us faces a spiritual battle in the world today. If you think that your enemy is other people, you've misunderstood the message of the Lord. You and I, as followers of Jesus, need to be clear that, as Paul wrote to the the, uh, the early church, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. In other words, our purpose is not to fight with other people. That doesn't mean that we just roll over in the face of unrighteousness or injustice. It certainly doesn't mean that we just acquiesce to falsehood and fraud and delusion. But it means that we recognize that other people are not our enemy. In fact, they are our mission. The Lord has called us to express his love to others, to express his truth to others, to extend his invitation to others. So if people are your enemy, that's of the enemy. And the real enemy, the enemy of your soul and mine, of course, is the devil. It's spiritual powers and principalities in the heavenlies, as Paul says in Ephesians. It is spiritual powers not visible to the world because people of the world are blinded to the enemy. And so, if you and I are to really recognize the battle that we are fighting, we need to recognize the Lord that we are serving. Now, in ancient days, in the time of ancient Israel, the fact of the matter was that was a nation that was surrounded by enemies who were not only at odds with the people of Israel, but who were blatantly and explicitly at odds with the God of Israel. And these were foes like the Philistines, but also the Ammonites and others, who wanted to divide and conquer, as the saying goes. They saw that the tribes of Israel were not that cohesive. Even in the days of the judges, usually the judges were only leading a certain set of tribes or perhaps a single tribe. There were certain limited partnerships, but there were constant internal, internecine divisions between the brothers and sisters of Israel. For those of you in PSOM with me studying the children of Israel, the man who gave rise to the nation, you know that that's a story that goes all the way back to the beginning. There was feuding and infighting between those brothers, and that kind of feuding and infighting continued into the nation itself. And so enemies around them saw, if we can divide these tribes from each other, if we can fight them sort of piecemeal, we can obtain a victory and also keep them down. So when the Lord anointed Saul to be king over this people, the anointing was one in which Saul became empowered to unify those disparate tribes into a single nation. 
Divided we fall, but united we stand. And Saul unified the people so that they would, in the words of verse 7 of this chapter, be one. That they would all come out as one man into battle. That they would stand together as one person in the spirit, so to speak. So today, you and I face an enemy who also wants to divide and conquer. You'll see in the text in just a moment that the enemies of Israel were trying to gouge out the eyes of each of the warriors to blind them, to make them ineffective. The devil wants to blind you and I spiritually to the truth. In fact, before we come to the Lord, we're already blind. But once we are following Jesus, the enemy is all the more interested in trying to blind us to the vision of faith and leave us only the vision of the flesh. In this text, you're going to see that the enemy proposes to gouge out the right eye of each man in the army. Why not both? The right eye was enough to make them ineffective as warriors. And it also made a shameful appearance for them. But you see, it allowed them just enough limited vision to keep on seeing what the enemy wanted them to see. To see themselves defeated, to see the strength of the enemy, and to see no other option or hope. And isn't that exactly what the devil wants to do to you and I today? He wants to keep us ensconced in the prison of the vision of flesh. But the Lord wants to open your eyes and mine to the power of the Spirit. The devil tries to dash our faith and to strike division among the people of God. But the same Holy Spirit who inspired Saul to become a victorious warrior who delivered his people out of the hands of the enemy is that very spirit who equips you and I today to be more than conquerors in Christ and to be united in Christ. There's a couple of passages there from the letters of Paul that we'll come back to as I come to the conclusion. But let's find a structure for today's message. In this chapter of only 15 verses, it begins with the threat of a loss of vision, the shame and defeat that the enemy wants to bring upon the people of Israel. But instead, the king of Israel, under the anointing of the spirit of the God of Israel, who's the God of all the earth, the one and only God, calls for and prepares a revival of purpose in the people of Israel, a specific strategic plan of attack that necessitates the unity of the people. The people being unified is central to the plan, even though there's a diversity of, of uh, teams. So there's an interesting kind of dichotomy in this passage between divisions which occur and unifications which occur. We'll talk more about that. Suffice it to say, the revival of the Lord's purpose brings about a renewal of the Lord's kingdom. That is to say, the kingdom of Israel on earth. And so the victory of God is how the chapter concludes in its final verses. Let's look together at each of these three sections of the chapter. Part one, the threat. The threat is loss of vision. Will you say that out loud? The threat is loss of vision. Nahash is the name of this leader of a people group called the Ammonites. They're on the far side of the Jordan, the Transjordanian area. In other words, to the east of Israel and the Promised Land. And so this Nahash goes up and he besieges Jabesh Gilead, which is in that same region. It's over across the, uh, uh, the river and at the boundary area to the east. So it's kind of an isolated encampment of Israel. A border town, if you will. Now, 
There's actually, in the, uh, one of the Dead Sea Scrolls that was found back in 1948, in a little desert cave in an area called Qumran, in the region of the Dead Sea in Israel, that gives a more extensive uh, introduction to this passage. That scroll is some 2,000 years old, so it's a pretty old piece of text, although it didn't carry forward with all of the copying. But in that text, it suggests that this Nahash was doing something or proposing to do something in Jabesh Gilead that he had already done in other uh, outposts of the Israelites in this part of, the, of uh, the, the region, which is that he had gone around blinding and dominating other border towns. And now he comes to Jabesh Gilead, and all the men of Jabesh say to Nahash, rather than killing us, that's the implication, make a treaty with us. What they're saying is, we don't want to fight you. We can't fight you. Can we make a deal with you? Look, we'll be subservient to you. They propose a vassal arrangement. In other words, our town, what do you want? You want money? We'll pay you money. You need service? We'll give you service. You want a commitment that we won't fight you? Tell us what you want, and we'll sign the contract. We want to make a deal. And Nahash says, all right, I'm willing. On this condition, I gouge out all your right eyes. It's a serious proposal. What he's saying is, I'm going to limit you in a permanent way, in an utterly visible way, and my purpose is to disgrace you, to deface you. Now, it not only is going to make them ineffective as warriors, but it's going to make them humiliated as people. The elders of Jabba said, we need to think about it. <laughs> Give us seven days so that we can send messengers through all Israel. They're clear. What they're saying is, we're looking for someone to help fight. We don't want to submit to this. But we need time to see if we can gather support from the rest of Israel. If there's no one to save us, we'll give ourselves up to you. How often the devil comes and says, God doesn't want you or God isn't there? Jesus, there's no savior for you. Jesus is a myth or a lie or a fraud or a long dead man. Don't believe it. Amen. You have a shield and he is the Lord. You have a defender and a deliverer and a savior and Jesus is his name. So you don't have to wait seven days. Send out the message now, right? I need your help, Jesus. And he is there. These, though, they say seven days, and it's a rather divine number, isn't it? God created the world in seven days. They may assume he can provide salvation to them in that same time. And the messengers came to Gibeah of Saul. So these men from Jabesh Gilead had sent out messengers all over the nation. Now you think, well, Saul's already been crowned, and Saul's already been anointed. Why wasn't there just immediately uh, a reference to Saul? Because there wasn't really any establishment of a government yet, right? You remember that? It's all been ceremonial. Now the rubber is going to meet the road, as the saying goes. So the messengers come to Gibeah of Saul, and they report to the people of that town, and all the people of that town, do they say, we have a king. We have a deliverer. We can call upon the Lord. We have a prophet. No, they weep. They say, woe is us. They say, oh, no, we are in trouble. 
Now we've heard about and we'll continue to hear about the Philistines as a chief enemy of Israel in this era. But the Ammonites that are the subject of today's passage were next to the Philistines the most um, uh, military threat to Israel in the time. In other words, they were enemy number two. And they were a significantly more militarily powerful people group and probably more unified at this point than Israel. As I've mentioned, the removal of the right eyes is an attempt to weaken their enemies in Israel and to humiliate them. Why is it that Naash would have said, okay, go ahead, take seven days, try and find somebody else? What benefit is there to him in that? We can presume that he sees the benefit as, first of all, they're maybe not going to get anybody. And if they don't get anybody, they're going to be all the more demoralized and all the more humiliated. But if they do get some cadre of uh, Israelite warriors to join them, then you know what that means? More men for me to defeat. More troops for me to overcome. More eyes for me to gouge out. Greater victory for me, thinks Nahash. And so he agrees to it because he thinks I'll blind and defeat even more of the enemy this way. Now, if you've been tracking with this sermon series, and if you haven't, if you're a guest today, it's okay. But for those of you that have been reading in 1 Samuel with me, you know that the symbolism of blindness as a metaphor for spiritual myopia, for a lack of spiritual insight, has been something that we've been seeing basically from the beginning of the story. And here it comes to a kind of, well, if you'll forgive the term, sharp point. Because once again, it's a lack of vision for God's plans and purposes that is being symbolized by the effort of the enemy to blind the people. Nahash, by the way, may not know that Saul had this regnal anointing. He may not know that Saul has been named king and that there is actually a potential for extraordinary military might that Saul can marshal as he unifies the people. So Nahash's pride is his own kind of blindness. He's so certain of his superiority that he's blind to the threat that he's in fact inviting by allowing these people to send messengers throughout the nation. That also is probably the effect of God in the situation, who is able to blind the proud in order to give sight to the humble. Amen? So here's some lessons for us today in this first section. The enemy of our souls wants to blind us. He wants to shame us. Don't be ignorant of the efforts of the enemy. Know that the devil is out to get you. That's not just some kind of old-fashioned preacher fanaticism. That's a fact of the spiritual realm that the enemy is most interested in you disregarding. But you don't have to, and you shouldn't. Because the Lord wants to pull back the curtain and show you just what the enemy is up to. He wants you and I to rely on the flesh and walk in it, to see by the flesh rather than to see things by faith in the spirit. So every time you and I operate according to the flesh, making our decisions based on fleshly motives and, and fleshly sensibilities and, and fleshly vision, what we are doing is we are saying to the enemy, gouge out my right eye so that I can serve you without a fight. And he does it. But if instead we look at the situation and we weep, right? Like the people of Gibeah. Oh God, what are we going to do? There's a king to come to. 
There's a king who rallies us. And Jesus says, don't look at what you can see with that eye. Look and see what you can see through my eyes. There is victory in the wings waiting to come on stage. But it requires a patient perspective on our part. And if we're going to do this and wait upon our Savior, it probably is going to feel like it looks foolish. Just as those people of Jabesh Gilead might have felt like they were just sitting ducks there in the crosshairs of Nahash. But it's actually Nahash who's in the crosshairs of God. Because when God brings the cross to bear on a situation, the enemy loses. And God's victory is secured. Those who wait upon the Lord will renew their strength and receive his victory. So says the Lord by his spirit in the prophet Isaiah. And that's what lo the Lord shows us here. Isaiah also spoke under the inspiration of the spirit to say, Since ancient times, no eye has seen any God beside the God of Israel the one and only God who acts on behalf of those who wait for him. He comes to the defense of those who call upon him. This is the very passage that Paul quotes to the Corinthians in his first letter to them that's going to be the subject of Pastor Hingey's preaching next week, and it's not going to be a message you want to miss. So come and hear about uh, the power of the Lord and the better vision that he has for what is ahead. The Lord wants us to be unafraid. Amen. Unafraid to face the enemy that we face, not because of our own strength, but because of the Savior who strengthens us. Saul has that sensibility because Saul has been anointed in that spirit. So now here's Saul, the farmer. He's gone back to the plow. He's gone back to the crop. He's doing what he's doing, and it's his normal life. But when he hears words of this and sees the whole town around him crying, he says, what's wrong with the people that they're weeping? Then they tell him the news. Well, these men from Jabesh came, and here's the warning. And what happens? The Spirit of the Lord rushes upon Saul. It is the very language and the very scene of the judges. Remember when we studied the book of Judges? This is how the anointing would come upon the judges. Saul is being raised up like a judge, but even greater. Because whereas the judges ruled in part and achieved in part, Saul has something fuller, more whole. The Spirit of God enables Saul and empowers Saul and impassions Saul. In fact, it says his anger was greatly kindled. Don't mistake this. This is a kind of righteous indignation. What he's angry about is that the enemies of the Lord are trying to shame the Lord. Remember when Samuel said that the people uh, turning against him, well, the Lord said to Samuel, it's not against you, but against me that they've turned. So here, the Ammonites are not just against the Israelites, it's the Ammonites against God. And the indignation that Saul feels is that the enemy, the devil, at work in these people is trying to shame the Lord. Far be it, he says. So he does something bold and rather grisly. He took a yoke of oxen, a team of oxen, and he cuts them in pieces, and he sends pieces of them, butchered, all throughout the territory of Israel with messengers. And the messengers have this message to go with the meat. 
Whoever does not come after Saul and Samuel, notice that he puts the prophet of the Lord in conjunction with himself. He is unifying already. He's saying the king is not going to operate at odds with the prophet. The king is not going to operate at odds with God. But the prophet of God and the king anointed by God are calling you as the people of God to come together and unify. And if you don't, then you're not part of the people and you're going to be cut off the way these oxen have been cut apart. And then the dread of the Lord, the fear of the Lord falls upon the people because they realize what Saul is saying is you're either going to fight with us or we will fight against you because we are going to be one nation. Remember that in the days of the judges, there were many times when various tribes said, no, we're not going to come and fight. And Saul is saying, no more, no more of that. And the spirit of the Lord is saying to you and I today, PCF, no division. There can be distinction. There can be and should be distinction and division of labor and task. And in fact, Saul is going to do that very thing. He's going to create teams. They're going to come from different directions. But they have one spirit, one plan, one strategy, one Lord. That's the call for you and I today in this season. Where there's so much division in the world, let there not be division in the church. Let us be as one, yes? Not rallying around any person other than Jesus Christ, but giving love to every person in Jesus Christ. And so the people came out as one man. Will you say that? They came out as one man. So Saul mustered them at a place called Bezek, and the people of Israel were 300,000, and the men of Judah, 30,000. Already there's a recognition here in the text of what's going to happen generations later. This unity will be divided because the enemy will achieve that division. But you also see here a recognition that the ten tribes are ten times the size of the one tribe of Judah. But the one tribe of Judah means praise. And so even though there's only a tenth, a tithe if you will. There's power in that tithe because that tithe expresses praise. And when it is unified with all the people, then there is victory. They said to the messengers, thus you shall say to the men of Jabesh Gilead. In other words, they sent the messenger back and said, go back to that town and let them know we're coming. In fact, tomorrow by the time the sun is hot, you will have salvation. By tomorrow late afternoon, you're going to be delivered. Maybe the Lord is speaking to you, friend, today to say, you think that the time is running short and you think you've been waiting too long. But I say, says the Lord, that by tomorrow when the sun is hot, I will have achieved salvation and deliverance for you. If that's the message of the Lord to you today, receive it, believe it, lay hold of it. You can imagine that the men and the women, the people of Jabesh, were glad. And so they said to the Ammonites, okay, tomorrow, tomorrow we'll give ourselves up to you, and you may do whatever seems good to you. Now, they've been fairly straightforward before, but they're not stupid. You don't need to tell the enemy your plans, right? It is, after all, the enemy who's trying to defeat you. And so they simply say, we'll be ready by tomorrow. But they don't share the fact that the whole nation is coming to fight on their behalf. So the plan is a plan of unity, but it is also a revival of purpose. These are years of purpose for you and I, PCF. And if you're a guest with us today, I invite you to receive that prophetic statement as well. 
beginning in 2020, the Lord was speaking to us about preparing for a fresh season of purpose. And in 2021, we began a series of years in which the, the annual theme of the Lord to us by His Spirit revealed to us is always related to purpose. Last year was the year of purpose. This year is the year of patience. But patience must be tied to purpose. In other words, you can't be patient if you have no purpose. But when you know your purpose and when that entails the arrival of the Lord to deliver you, then you can receive the patience that perseveres to the point of victory. We saw that Saul had received prophetic power when he was anointed as king. He made these proclamations in the last chapter as a prophet would. Now what we see is Saul being empowered in the spirit like the former judges with military strength, with heroic courage, and with an invigorating passion that casts vision for the whole people. People hear in his voice and sense in his spirit that there's a unifying purpose that they want to be part of. And my desire, my prayer, is that the same would be true of you in your workplaces, in your family, wherever you go, in your classrooms, that the Spirit of the Lord would anoint you and impassion you to be a voice of unity and truth that comes against the deceit and the blindness of the enemy and that achieves victory for people, not in your own power, but by the power of the Spirit of the Lord upon you and in you. In this reiteration of the charismatic equipping of the judges, that is the Holy Spirit anointing power that comes upon them, the strength of Saul's rule is seen as also being, as the prophet later will say in Zechariah, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. And so, though we don't see it in this passage, when the time comes that Saul falters, the way that he falters is that he tries to retain the power for himself, and he resists and rejects the spirit of the Lord. Here, he's in the spirit, and the spirit brings victory. Later, he'll be walking in the flesh, and the flesh profits nothing. So walk in the Spirit, and so to the Spirit, because it's the Spirit that brings life. Now there's an interesting passage here, as we've seen, in Saul's butchery of the oxen. And I just want to say something. It may ring a bell for you. When we studied the book of Judges, you may remember towards the end of the book of Judges, we saw a scene even more ghastly than this. In Judges chapter 19, there was that Levite man who had a concubine who was traveling with him. And when they were in a place called Gibeah, which, by the way, ding, 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 is this town that Saul lives in. When they were there, the Gibeahites were horrendous to that man and to his concubine spouse. They gang-raped her. It's horrible, but that's what the text relates. They gang-raped her to death. And when in the morning she laid there dead on the, on the front stoop, then the man found her. Now, we talked at that time, and if you want to hear about that message, you can go back and find it in our archive. It's a, it's a difficult story. And it's one of those times when it's important to remember that just because the Bible presents something doesn't mean that the Bible endorses it. But what that man does is in order to strike fear and to bring about justice throughout the nation, he divides up the, the dead body of his concubine and sends pieces of her all over the nation. So what Saul is doing here seems to be a kind of echo of that. Thank 
the heavens that he does it with an animal. But what do we see in that? There's a kind of sacrifice that Saul makes. And it's possible that there may be in mind here a kind of redemptive reversal. The place where that real evil was done that produced civil war among the nation of Israel is now being reversed through a sacrificial offering by which Saul in the spirit is saying, we must not be divided and kill each other and harm each other and wrong each other. We must be united and be as one. Perhaps there's something of an atonement in this sacrifice that you and I could interpret. In any case, there is definitely a unification. So interestingly enough, the division of the oxen produces the unification of the people. You and I might see a similar process in the death of Jesus bringing about the life of you and I in the spirit. There's a sort of reversal going on, and it's God setting things right. Now, in the former times, there were judges that had powerful anointing, judges like Gideon and Samuel and Jephthah and so forth. But even the greatest of those judges only exerted authority over and produced unity within a certain portion, a fraction of the tribes of the nation, and always only for a time. But Saul here is entering fully into his ruling role, and he's entering well at the start, and he's uniting this federation of families, of tribes, into a truly integrated nation in which all the tribes are one. So lessons for us from this middle section. Patience doesn't always look patient. The patience of the people of Jabesh Gilead calling out for help probably felt very urgent for them. We've got seven days. Come and help us. But they are waiting upon the Lord. But how about this passion of Saul? It's a different kind of patience. People might look at Saul and say, oh, you're cutting up oxen and sending them all around the nation, and you're, you're, you're making these very bold statements. But what Saul is recognizing is now is the time for action. We've talked before about how patience is not only about waiting, it's also about moving, about going. It's sort of like the patience at a, at a stop sign, or a stoplight, rather. You stop when the light is red, but when the light turns green, it's time to go. And here, Saul is active with the prompting of the Spirit. He's going to muster others into this greater unity, into this greater trust in God. And he's going to do it vigorously. So don't let patience be misconstrued as, as lackluster, ineffective, ambivalent inertia. Patience is looking for the signs and following the signals and moving according to the signal. Actually, again, one of the problems for Saul later on is the light is going to be red, and he's going to go anyway. Have you ever been waiting at a light, and you think, this light is never going to change. I'm just going to go. I hope you've never had that experience where you're sitting there, and you think, I'm just going to go, and then the cop that was right behind the bush there comes out and says, I saw you. <laughs> but you know what? That would be better than you saying, I'm just going to go, and the car that's barreling down in the cross direction comes and hits you. Don't go when the light is red no matter how long you've been waiting. Better not to go against the light. Saul waits longer than he wants to, and at some point he says, I'm just going to go, and he gets ahead of God, and he loses the spirit. Waiting upon the Lord is looking for his signs, and it involves calling other people 
to be attentive to those signs and to faithfully rally for the common cause that God gives us. Now, we're coming to the last section here. Four more verses and some, uh, some closing points. And then we're done with today's message. But I hope that it's been packing into your spiritual bag some very useful material for how you and I can move forward into the world that we're living in today with the victory that God has for us. And that victory is about revival. It's about renewal, not just of our own purpose in the Lord, but renewal of our collective purpose in the kingdom. So Saul has gathered all the nations, or excuse me, all the tribes of the nation together, and he has truly inscripted them into military unity. But now what he's going to do is create divisions, right? There are divisions of troops that are going to make their attack more strategically effective. Three companies who, in the midst of the camp, in the morning watch, in those dark hours, when the sun seems farthest, when the birds go silent, and there's only the stray call from here and there. This is the time, the time where we began, where they're huddled and hunched together in their groups, waiting for the signal. It's go time. We're told that it's in the morning hours, between 3 and 6 AM. That's what the morning watch would be, essentially the hours immediately before dawn. And once they receive the signal to go, they surprise the enemy. As the sun is rising, the troops are falling, and the enemy is fleeing. But they fight and strike down the Ammonites, who were stronger and more militarily uh, sophisticated than them. But the Spirit of the Lord gives them victory, and so much victory that they are able to decimate the enemy for hour upon hour upon hour to the heat of the day, which would be about 3 to 5 p.m. You, you may be surprised to know that that uh, scientifically speaking, generally the hottest time of day is around 4 p.m. And that's because the sun uh, heats the earth and it takes time for the earth to radiate that heat off. So even though the sun is highest at noon, it's about three to five hours later that the heat is most intense. So what this means is for something like 12 hours, they have victory against the enemies. And that's very profound because it's saying that the tide was in their favor the whole time, and they are able to achieve an extraordinary uh, damage to the forces of the enemy. Many of the enemy are cut down in those 12 hours. And of those that survive, they are scattered, divided. The survivor of the Ammonites can't even unite two together. Now then, you and I, we know that Wherever two or more are gathered in Jesus' name, there is unity. But if one can send, what, a hundred to flight, then two, a thousand, and how many more when we are unified? So the enemy scatters, but the people of God are unified. Now, here's the sort of epilogue. Victory! And here's Saul coming out. We can imagine arms raised over the people, arms raised to the Lord. We have victory in the Lord. Hallelujah. And people in their enthusiasm and excitement, they're cheering. Remember when the Lakers win? Whoo! Don't be downtown when the Lakers win, right? All of a sudden, there's blood in the water. The people say, we have victory, we have victory. Where are those that didn't want Saul to be king? Bring them out here. 
we're going to kill them. The people are so enthusiastic about Saul's victory that now what they want to do is put to death any enemy of Saul. And this would be a very typical thing for a victorious king, especially one early in his reign who had faced some objection. Remember last week in chapter 